Good morning. God is good. All the time. Amen. You know, it's uh, pretty much on that truth that your faith depends. If you don't come to a solid, unshakable conviction, belief that God is good, your faith will not stand. God is good all the time. Do you believe it? All the time? It's easy to believe it when things are going good. In a movie a couple years back, Richard Dreyfuss played a compulsive gambler who scored big on a horse race. And as he was standing there with his fist full of money, he said, God likes me. He really, really likes me. And a few minutes later, when he lost it all in another race, uh, his belief in God's goodness disappeared. Now, we laugh at uh, the superficiality of that belief because it's absurd. But it is how we feel. And as you're sitting in that new car, you say, oh, God is good. On your wedding day, God is good. As you're holding that uh, new little baby, healthy and strong, God is good. As you get that uh, promotion, maybe, God is good. When we uh, experience success and, and pleasures in life, we say, God is good. And He is. And these are evidence of His goodness. But when our spouse dies, or when that little precious baby is in an incubator struggling for life, or the pregnancy never comes, or when somebody else gets the promotion and you get a pink slip, when the bank account's empty, has God stopped being good? Our culture says yes. If God were good, He would protect us from pain and loss. If God were good, we wouldn't suffer these things. If God were good, He would give us uninterrupted health, wealth, success. You see, the fact is, He doesn't. Life doesn't work that way. So we turn elsewhere to find good. We turn to our culture that promises us uninterrupted health, pleasure, wealth, success. We begin to chase after these things, thinking that they will bring us joy, peace, or at least all the pain. We maintain kind of the form of religion. But we really look elsewhere for goodness. Now, please don't think that I'm berating you, berating us or mocking us. We're talking about real life, real feelings, not just theological knowledge here. Quite honestly, this is how we often feel. In the face of real pain, real disappointment, almost unbearable heartache, almost unbearable pain. That's where the real struggle of faith takes place. If God is good, how could He have let this happen? And even worse, if God is good, how could He have willed this for me? 
But there it is. That is the reality. That is what we experience. Life is riddled with pain and loss and heartache. And we've got to figure out how to deal with it. In the uh, long kiss goodbye, the primary character says to her eight-year-old daughter, Life is pain. Get used to it. Is that the only answer? Kind of resigned bitterness? This morning we're going to look at one of, I think, the most radical teachings of the New Testament. Peter's going to talk to us about a completely different way of looking at suffering. And the things that Peter has to say, I think we, uh, for the most part, are entirely unequipped to understand. Nothing in our culture prepares us to understand these things. In fact, it works the opposite way. It it, it makes it more difficult to understand these things. So this is going to be a a severe challenge for us. Not one to which we should casually acquiesce. The outlook Peter is giving us is something we need to think through, to struggle with deeply. Otherwise, some Suffering is going to eventually come along and it's going to depose your belief in a good God and leave you hopeless. Now, Peter's been working on this for some time. We're in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter right now. But ever since the first chapter, Peter's been talking about suffering. And here at the end of the fourth chapter, Peter brings this discussion to a conclusion. But let's keep in mind what Peter told us last week. What Peter said last week was that there isn't much time. And in view of how little time we have, we should keep focused on certain things. And one of those things, the most important, the most primary, essential thing to keep focused on is your prayer life. Is your inner life with God. Having Him at the core of your being. Having Him as your secret life. Well, see, that's essential to our discussion today. Uh, last week, Peter told us that if you don't have God at that core, the center of your life, His presence, connected with Him, listening to Him, something else will be there. Something else will be driving you. Some other desire, some other ambition, some secret life focused on something else. Quite honestly, those other things that that crowd out God in our life, whether they be uh, pleasures or family or success, possessions, whatever it is that that, that crowds out God at the core of our being, these things can be taken away from us. And when they are, then we're crushed. We're hollowed out. We become coreless and we collapse. See, these things can and often are taken away from us. And suffering is the loss of these things, whatever they are. Maybe it's the death of somebody you've been living for. Maybe it's the death of the relationship. Maybe it's just realizing that what you've been pursuing all your life, your secret life, the thing that nobody else knows that has been driving you, that that is your longing, really isn't going to give you what you wanted. That you've been chasing an illusion, a deception, realizing that. That, that wealth cannot give you peace. Fame cannot give you satisfaction. You know, think of, of Elvis. 
He's been in the, the news a lot lately, the anniversary of his death. Now, here was a man who was extremely wealthy, well, loved by millions, virtually worshipped. But he died. I hate to be the one to tell you, Elvis is dead. He died miserably, empty and alone. His core collapsed. Only God can fill that inner space. Only a relationship with Him can satisfy. Only His Spirit can bring peace. So that's the reality. And His love, that relationship with Him, His presence in our life can never, never be taken away from us, no matter what happens. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So with that as a starting point, let's look at what Peter says. He starts verse 12. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. If you have a Bible with you. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 begins with dear friends. It's literally people that I love. Peter starts very gently, very carefully. Peter knows what it's like to suffer. So he's not rough or or brutal with them. He's very tender, very loving, very careful. Because Peter knows that the things that he has to say, if they're just thrown at people in a careless, uh, unloving manner, and they are cruel. It's virtually abusive. Because Peter tells us in the face of suffering that we can rejoice. That we can be glad to have it. We can be grateful for it. And to, to sit with somebody who's just lost a spouse and tell them that kind of thing. Or somebody who's just lost their job and say, well, be grateful for it. That is a disgusting display of insensitivity. The truth, times like that, carelessly thrown around, is brutal. You see, that's not what Peter's doing. Peter loves these people. They know he loves them. And he's speaking out of that love. And what he's doing is trying to prepare them for when these things happen. He's gently giving them the truth. So that when these things happen, they've got truth already to hold on to. So that they can survive. And what Peter says... Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though some strange thing were happening to you. First thing Peter tells them and us is don't be surprised at suffering. It's not an anomaly. It's integral to life. It happens for everybody. In spite of what we seem to believe, life should be this way. If we saw the whole picture and understood it all, We would no longer say life shouldn't be this way. Why were they surprised? Well, see, these people had given their lives to God. They had God at the core of their being. Shouldn't everything just kind of smooth out from here? They were doing it right. Shouldn't it all work out? I mean, God's sovereign. God loves them. Therefore, shouldn't He make them healthy, wealthy, give them everything they want? But again, there's that confusion. That being healthy, wealthy, having everything we want will give us joy. 
or that it will be what is healthy for us spiritually, or, 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 or that it will meet our deepest longings. And that's a lie. That, that, that's again the, the world speaking, our flesh speaking. And it just isn't true. Christians suffer. And that suffering is from God. He wills it at times. Now, why? Well, one of the reasons is uh, in this verse that I, that I read. In the original language, it's even stronger because what Peter literally says is, don't be surprised by the fiery trials which come upon you for your testing. For your testing. So this is a test. Oh, great. So God's going to beat up on me just to see if I react and get mad. I mean, how fair is that? Is God so uh, insecure he has to keep testing our love, make sure it's there? We have to keep proving it to him over and over again? No. These tests aren't for his benefit. These tests are for our benefit. God's not trying to discover what's in us, what's at the core of our heart. He knows these tests are to reveal it because we need to know it. We need to see it. Suffering exposes the inner life, shows whether he is at our core or or something else is. And you see, our collapse demonstrates, reveals, makes known to us that God is not at our core. Now realize, loss is painful, no matter whether you're centered on God or not. Even if you're absolutely centered on God, suffering hurts. There's a difference between pain and collapse. You see, pain can be pure. It can uh, bitterness, self-pity, despair are not the necessary companions of pain. Pain can be pure. In fact, I pity those who've never experienced pure pain. Pain without self-pity. Pain without confusion and fear. Pain without bitterness and despair. Because pure pain is a holy and wholesome thing. It refines us. It strengthens us. But our collapse in the face of pain is what lays open the fact that God isn't at our core. Something else was there. Now, is God so jealous that he's going to destroy our dreams if we're not at his core? Well, the simple, short answer is yes. Yes, he is. But his jealousy is love. See, when we have anything other than God at our core, at our heart, we're living compromised lives, unhealthy lives, cancer-ridden lives that, that, that make it impossible to truly experience peace and joy and freedom. And He loves us too much to leave us like that. He loves us enough to shake our worlds, to hurt with us, to free us from these other things that we worship so that we can have Him at our core and receive life, real life, from Him. It's the incredible condescension of our God. 
that He accepts us even when we only come to Him because our first love was taken from us or collapsed. He doesn't say to us, if I'm no more important to you than that, I don't want you. Not at all. He welcomes us. He embraces us. And He comforts us in our loss and our pain. Realize that this suffering is not His creation. Suffering is a result of sin and the fallenness of this world. But God, in His sovereign love, wills it for us, uses it in our lives to free us, to expose us, to give us life. See, this is His, his plan, His desire in the unbeliever as well. The suffering in the life of the unbeliever is God's grace as well. Not just leaving them content in their lives. It's happily stumbling along the road to hell. He loves them enough to shake their world, to expose their core, if they'll only see it honestly. His, his longing is that they will turn to Him and let Him give them life, real life. But exposing and freeing isn't the only reason Peter gives us for suffering. He keeps talking, verses 13 and 14. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the glory and Spirit of God rests on you. Now this is as counterculture as it gets. Peter's telling us here that we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. That means we can be glad. We can can be grateful for it. Happy to have it. Come on, man. Get real. But this is real. Peter's being real. This is a possibility. Now, there are two reasons that we can be glad when we have the opportunity to suffer that that are embedded in in these verses. The first is that it is suffering for Christ. It is His suffering that we are sharing. We are insulted because we bear His name. It is suffering for Him. This has to do with honor. Virile honor. Now I use, I use that word, term virile honor, without any gender connotation because it's every bit as obvious in women of faith as it is in men of faith. But what I'm talking about is powerful, deep, compelling honor. The honor of suffering for Christ. Now our culture denigrates honor by by pointing to its abuse, by by pointing to times where wickedness has been done in the name of country, in the name of of honor, by exposing the confusion that's often really there between honor and sinful pride, selfish pride. But honor is a powerful Spiritual value. It's a deeply motivating and fulfilling virtue. When we love someone deeply, it is a joy to be able to give to them the best that we have, all that we have. Even to give ourselves to them. And to be able to have the opportunity to express that in costly 
and concrete action is a privilege. So there have been many people who have given their lives for honor, for love of country, for family, for companions. And there is no greater honor. The greatest possible honor is for us to give our life to and for Jesus. But again, our culture tries to eradicate honor by convincing us that only self-interest is real. Only self-interest can satisfy. Honor is an illusion and it's foolish. But that isn't so. Honor is real. And rediscovering that in our relationship with Jesus is a reward in and of itself. Honor is, touches us more deeply than almost any other virtue. And our Lord and our Master has chosen to continue to suffer by loving people who do not respect Him. How can we who love Him not join Him in that? It's our honor. The other reason that we can be delighted when we have the privilege to suffer, to suffer for Jesus, is the revelation of glory. Now again, we're talking about things that are sadly foreign to our culture. Glory and honor. Our culture tells us we should focus on hamburgers and perfume because there's profit to be made in hamburgers and and, and perfume. But there's no profit in glory. Honor cannot be sold to you at the mall. In fact, honor and glory will get in the way of our self-indulgent consumerism. But again, these are some of the greatest values, the most valuable gifts, most emotionally healthy gifts that our God can give us. Let's look a little closer at glory. What is he talking about? First, It is Christ's glory. It is God's glory. Verse 13, Peter says that you will be glad with overwhelming joy when His glory is revealed. His glory is revealed. And then later, Peter said, uh, when we are insulted, we are blessed because the glory and Spirit of God rests on you. Uh, I apologize for the mistranslation in the NIV, but it should read, the glory and Spirit of God rests rest on you. It's God's glory that rests on you. Now, first of all, let's get real again. He's talking about being insulted. Nobody likes to be insulted. I and mean, we could talk about that here in this room and everybody smiles and nods. But you walk out of this, this room and somebody insults you, your face is going to turn red. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard to deal with. Your teeth are going to clench. Nobody likes to be insulted. To be ridiculed. To be reviled. This is hard stuff. Uh, Last week I I saw a brief news report on uh, the Promise Keepers March in Washington. I mean, this is a huge event. But they didn't interview any of the Promise Keeper leadership. They interviewed the president of the National Organization of Women. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of like interviewing the head of the Ku Klux Klan about the Million Man March. It, it doesn't connect. You're not going to get their heart, their motive. 
And this now representative was talking about how anti-women this whole Promise Keeper movement is. Now, that was hard for me to take. I've been to several Promise Keeper events. And they're anything but anti-women. In fact, I think one of the greatest beneficiaries of calling men to follow Jesus with a heart and an attitude of submission and love like our Lord had and to, to, to be responsible before Him, one of the greatest beneficiaries are going to be women, wives and daughters. I, I had trouble feeling blessed by that interview. I, to some degree, I felt personally attacked, misunderstood, reviled. And, and it saddened me that there were people who would see that and, and be turned away from this movement when possibly they could have been helped by it. Now, why should I rejoice in that? I shouldn't. But what I should rejoice in is that we, as a community, the Promise Keepers, as an organization, now has an opportunity to respond with gentleness and love and understanding. You see, to react and to strike back to revile the media or revile the National Organization of Women, to pay them back, that's where glory would be lost. But to be heartbroken over the lostness that's causing our culture to misunderstand, to misinterpret what we do to love them, to let that break your heart, to understand their heart, That's where the glory will shine through. Why? Well, because that's where the life and the character of Christ shines through. And that is our glory. His glory in us. The glory of suffering is that it allows the life of Jesus, the love of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit to shine through us. When we are suffering and we're submitted ourselves to God, trusting Him, and our flesh is broken down and broken through, people see God. They see His glory, the work of His Spirit. There's no other explanation for our behavior. You see, I have seen that glory many times. I have seen that inexplicable power of the Spirit many times. Times, sitting with a woman whose husband has just died or a man whose wife has been taken. There's no other explanation. That's the only explanation for the peace and the wisdom in the midst of almost unbearable pain. The only explanation is the glory of God and the power of of His Holy Spirit. I've seen it uh, in the face of, of the woman we prayed for between services who's just been told that she has cancer. I've seen it in the face of a woman whose house burned down the morning she was talking to me. I've seen it in people who've lost their job, who faced all kinds of, of loss and disappointment and heartache. And quite honestly, it's at those times that those people have the most powerful ministry of their lives. 
Let me tell you one time I saw it so clearly. I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. When I was a student in training, one of the men that was discipling me uh, lost his three-year-old son. Uh, He was eating an apricot, choked on the pit, and in spite of the efforts of the paramedics and in the hospital, John David, the little boy, died. A few days later, at the uh, memorial service, Jack, the father, got up. And he said, I miss my son. There are so many things that I wanted to teach him, so many things I had planned to do with him that I just won't have the chance. So, but John David is now with Jesus. He knows all the stuff that I'm trying, struggling to figure out. He's experiencing everything my heart longs for. Don't grieve for John David. Don't weep for me. I love John David. I miss him terribly. But John David is not my Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord. And I still have him. For at that moment, the glory of the Lord shone through him. The power of the Holy Spirit rested on him like I had never seen before. Our suffering exposes our Lord's glory. It shines through us as our vessels of clay are cracked and broken. The glory of the Lord is revealed. And that is our glory, that we have Him inside of us at our core, and that it's shining out, it's showing through. Now, this doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't make the tears stop. But when we see that glory causes us to know that we are blessed. To really know it. And it causes us to rejoice. To actually be grateful in the midst of our pain. Right through those tears. I uh, cannot explain it. But I have seen it. Now, Peter gives us a brief caveat in verse 15 and 16. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. He says our suffering should not be for criminal activity. There is no glory in your suffering as a tax evader or for breaking firearm laws or or for being dishonest in your work. These things don't show the glory of God. These are shameful. And we should, out of loyalty to our Lord, suspend any activity that might bring dishonor to His name. Don't dishonor the name for your personal cause. But Peter also says that it shouldn't be as a meddler. As a busybody. This word that Peter uses here, he may have made up because it's not found anywhere else in any Greek literature. But it literally means someone who tries to run other people's lives. Now, even back then, it was a temptation for Christians to run other people's lives. And when we begin to live out of our, our, our core connection with God, 
He shows us things in our lives that are unhealthy and destructive. And as we repent of those things, they become repulsive to us. But we can easily become confused and somehow think that it's our job to stop our neighbor from these destructive, foolish behaviors. We begin to try to impose a believer's lifestyle on people who don't have the life of God in them. And it doesn't work. It wounds them. It offends them. It infuriates them. And they turn on us. They resent us. reject us. But Peter's saying, hey, that's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about. Again, that's suffering due to our own wrong behavior. Trying to, 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 to control and impose rather than to love and understand. Now he says the only reason that we should suffer at the hands of society is because we bear a shameful name. Christian. Now most of you probably don't realize that the name Christian was originally a put-down. The original believers did not call themselves by that name. People around them called them that to try to make fun of them. When I was in college in the 70s, they used to call at our campus, they called Christians Jesus freaks. Uh, kind of comparing us to, to, to drug addicts, you know, speed freaks. Or at our, comp, at our campus, they also called us jumpers. Because somebody, as a joke, who was tired of seeing all of these posters for Christian activities all over the campus, put up posters that said, Christians, gather at Stork Tower. Show that you love Jesus and jump off. Now, this was a huge tower right in the middle of the campus. So at that point, uh, people would call Christians jumpers for jumping for Jesus. And again, it, it, it was intended to be a put down, to make fun of us. And uh, guys in my dorm would call me Jesus for Jesus Freak. Or they'd call me Jumper. And I didn't like it much at the beginning. But after a while, it started to feel like a term of respect. See, that's the same thing with the term, the name Christian. It was originally meant to demean. But what it ultimately means is a follower of Christ. Or it may even mean a little Christ. A miniature Christ. Christ. Well, what could be a more honoring title than that? To be called a little Christ. And what Peter's saying here is, don't be ashamed. Lift your head up. Say thank you. Even though you know that they're not doing it as a compliment, say thank you. Keep your sense of humor and try to live up to it. Be a follower of Christ. Be a little Jesus. Let his life shine through you. Make it your life's ambition to be like him. To love like he does. To, to act like he does. To speak like he does. That will be your glory. Now quickly, let me explain the uh, next couple of verses. Verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Well, what's Peter's point? Basically, it's this. Everyone goes through suffering. It's part of life in this fallen world. No one in this room has escaped suffering. No one in this world lives without suffering. And if it is hard for us who know God, who are part of His household, part of His family, 
who've responded to the good news, to the gospel, how incredible it must be for those who don't have a relationship with God at their core. How awful for them. And many times uh, I've been sitting with somebody in this congregation, this body, who's gone through some horrible suffering. In the midst of that suffering, they say, how do people without the Lord survive this? How, How does somebody lose a loved one when they have no hope. And we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. How, how does somebody who lives for money and loses it all, how do they cope? How does somebody with a rebellious teenager survive the fear and the anguish without God's comfort, without knowing God's love and care for their son or daughter? How do people face illness without knowing the great physician? How do people live without the Lord? And as we think about that, as we consider how painful life is, even when we have God at our core, when we contemplate how confusing it gets, even when we know Him who is truth, when we experience the the anguish of, of broken dreams and broken relationships and estrangement from our families and all the rest, even though we have a future and a hope, And that should break our hearts for the people around us who don't know their loving Creator. And as we look around us in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, we should realize that our pain is just a taste of their pain. And it should break our hearts. Just like it does Jesus. He would gather them under his wings as as a hen gathers her chicks. Life is not good. God is. God is good all the time. And Peter hasn't exhausted the reasons for suffering. He's just given us a few. But his goal has been for us to understand that even in our suffering, God is is good. That we can trust Him. In life, you will suffer. As Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Don't be surprised by it. In spite of what our culture says, you cannot escape suffering. It will be there. And to live a life that's attempting to avoid suffering at all costs, to escape it, won't give you what you want. It'll just leave you gutted and empty and alone. And there's freedom in walking into suffering, walking through it, receiving it from our God's loving hand, learning from Him, being used by Him. The only question is whether you will go through suffering with Him, with Him who loves you and will cause all things to work together for your good, or without Him, apart from Him. Hudson Taylor once said, It doesn't matter how great the pressure is. What matters is where the pressure is. Whether it comes between me and God or whether it presses me nearer his heart. When you suffer, will you believe God that he is good? That he has good reason for it? Even if you don't know what it is. That it is his desire to share his glory with you.
we can rejoice in suffering. Not because we know exactly why this particular thing is happening to us, but because we know God. And we know that His love can never, never be taken from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We should rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that you're being purified. Rejoice in the opportunity to reestablish God at the core of your being. Rejoice that He's doing what we want Him to, what we've asked Him to do. He's making us like Himself. Rejoice that He's sharing and showing His glory through you. Rejoice that His Spirit rests on you and gives you the power to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with victory and honor, with supernatural joy. Because if you don't rejoice, if you don't recognize His goodness in the midst of it, your behavior will deteriorate to, to destructive attitudes, self-pity, destructive behaviors. This is radical. The ability to rejoice in suffering. But it's as simple as Peter's conclusion, verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should entrust, that's the word there, should entrust themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And that's your privilege. That's your power in suffering. This is real. God is good all the time, even in our suffering. Let's pray. Lord, it's one thing for me to affirm this up here while we're studying your word. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Peter's love and just laying this out for us so that we can understand it, so that we can be equipped in the midst of our suffering to hold on to the truth, to believe you. But Lord, I have to confess how often I lose sight of that, that even small suffering, even little inconveniences cause me to blow up in anger at you. Lord, may I allow you to expose me at those times to see where my heart really is, what I'm really after in life, what I, what's driving me, to bring it before you. You already know it's there. I pray for each person here that we would be open before you, honest, looking at what you're exposing, letting you love us, letting you forgive us, letting you change us. Lord, we want your glory. We want to live lives of honor. We want your glory to show through us because we want people to see you. We want people to find freedom in you. Lord, use us. We know that even in that request, we are asking to some degree for suffering. Lord, make us like yourself. Give us a whole new way of looking at life, not running from difficulty or pain, but walking through it, learning from you, used by you. Lord, thank you that Jesus, your Son, has made it possible for us to have you in our hearts and our lives, made it possible for us to understand suffering, suffered for us to show us how it can be done. Make us like him, we pray. His name, amen.